It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. That's not what it's presumed. Trump, Biden, 2024. But for one of these candidates, the cracks have become audible. They've become visible. For one of these candidates, they may not make it to 2024. Two, where have all the adults gone? What happened to wisdom? A fascinating conversation with Douglas Murray. Three, your best bets of the week with Chris Felica, the bear. It's the Will Kane Podcast on Fox News Podcast. What's up? And welcome to the weekend. Welcome to Friday. As always, I hope you will download, rate, and review this podcast wherever you get your audio entertainment at Apple, Spotify, or at Fox News Podcast. You can watch the Will Kane Podcast on Rumble or on YouTube and follow me on X at Will Kane. Story number one It must have been fascinating to be there. At the end of the Ice Age, when you could hear the cracks in the glacier, maybe even see the cracks beginning to form, maybe even begin to see the ice melt away. No, I'm not talking about modern day climate religion death cult who predicts the end of the earth is one more Arctic glacier falling away into the ocean away. Instead, I'm talking about the inevitability of Trump Biden 2024. You can hear the cracks. In that certainty, you can watch this matchup begin to fall apart. But it isn't the presumed indictments or criminal conviction of President Donald Trump that I think threatens that inevitability. It is Joe Biden. The thing about seeing the end of an era, the thing about seeing the end of something is it is never obvious in that moment. It starts small erosion that turns into a mudslide. And so, therefore, it isn't unanimous. It isn't in concert. It's only, well, just beginning. CNN has begun to question the stories of Joe Biden, their quote-unquote fact-checker, who is anything but... Daniel Dale hasn't shown much interest since the end of the Trump administration in checking any facts. But in the past week, they ran a segment about all of Joe Biden's lies. It seems to be predicated by the moment where Biden suggested he was there at Ground Zero on 9-11, which is most certainly not true. But it's something that he said. For any of us that keep up with Joe Biden, so he's got so many lies. But they began to be cataloged. By CNN. No, he didn't drive an 18-wheeler like he suggests. No, he wasn't there after a shooting at a synagogue. He spoke to the rabbi, but wasn't there at the synagogue. No, he isn't the man he has pretended to be. He isn't the guy who wrote Amtrak and told a story about a conductor who was long dead after he proclaims the story took place. No, he is not the man who's lived up to the stories that he has told. Those are mostly lies. And that should not come as a surprise because most of his early presidential candidacies and campaigns failed under accusations of plagiarism. He stole what he was saying from other people. Now it seems he's just fabricating stories about his life, about the world. That's not notable. We know that about Joe Biden. What's notable is that the mainstream media, notably in this case CNN, has noticed and has said so. And that's the cracks. You have to put it into the context of understanding the steel wall of the media, the absolute impenetrable fairy tale land that they've lived in for the past three years. No negative words, no critical analysis of Joe Biden. Why? Because, oh, my God, that could empower Donald Trump. So you cover, you lie. You propagandize for Joe Biden. When that stops, that's notable. When the propaganda ends, that's news. They seem to be preparing to move on from Joe Biden. Don't be so naive. We can't believe it's a moment where they all of a sudden 
have seen the light, have found Jesus. They're ready to tell the truth. No, maybe perhaps they've seen that, well, now Joe Biden trails Donald Trump in aggregate polls by one point in a hypothetical general election matchup. Now they see the ridiculousness of potentially turning to Kamala Harris. Now they see that that Joe Biden isn't a blank slate. He's not simply a referendum on Donald Trump. He's not just simply other. He's Joe Biden with three years of track record, and that's not very popular. It's not very good. Hasn't worked for America. So they've got to find an alternative. Now, this has been predicted in corners like right here on the Will Cain podcast that they will turn. Almost certainly to California Governor Gavin Newsom. But it is notable that they are turning on Joe Biden. But I mentioned it's not in concert. It's not in unison. There's still those that are holding to the idea that there is no evidence to indict or impeach Joe Biden based upon the obvious corruption of Hunter Biden. We laid out that evidence in the previous episode of the Will Kane podcast. Go check it out. Go listen to that. We go through it point by point, seven different pieces of circumstantial evidence. But it was interesting to see as the AP continues to write with no evidence, look at their headlines, look at what they say. Kevin McCarthy, House Majority Leader, pursues an impeachment inquiry with no evidence against Joe Biden. That's always what they say. But One particular AP reporter was confronted by Kevin McCarthy. He says, you keep saying no evidence. And then he walks through step by step with her. Do you think this happened? Do you believe this happened? Do you believe he had dinners with Hunter Biden's associates? Do you believe he talked on the phone with Hunter Biden's corrupt business partners? Do you believe that he lied when he said that he never had any business dealings or any relationship to Hunter's business dealings? Do you believe the... Bank records that show $20 million going to associates of the Biden family. Do you believe there was a $3 million payment shortly after one of these meetings with Hunter Biden's corrupt business partners? And every step of the way, the AP reporter says, well, that's the testimony. Well, that's that's what's been claimed in the testimony. Yes, true. That's in the testimony in front of the House Oversight Committee. Does this AP reporter know? Does she understand that testimony is evidence? Testimony is evidence. I mean, the justice system is predicated upon calling witnesses to the stand. That is evidence. Is she dumb? Is she stupid? Is she playing stupid? Is she playing dumb? How can she write on one hand with no evidence and on a moment later say, oh, well, that's the testimony. She either doesn't understand testimony or is once again proven to be a propagandist, remaining Frozen melt in the glacier, not yet cracked, not yet falling into the ocean. Not yet ready to sing in concert the truth. Because perhaps the AP hasn't yet figured out exactly where they will turn after Joe Biden. I promise you, not once it's become undeniable during an impeachment inquiry, but once they feel comfortable with Gavin Newsom, that's when the cracks will turn into a landslide, an avalanche. That's when they'll turn from Joe Biden. That's when the inevitability of Trump-Biden 2024 will turn into something other versus probably Donald Trump. We'll be right back with more of the Will Cain Podcast. Listen to the all-new Brett Bear Podcast featuring Common Ground, in-depth talks with lawmakers from opposite sides of the aisle, along with all your Brett Bear favorites like his all-star panel and much more. Available now at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Story number two. Whatever happened to wisdom? What happened to the adults in the room? Douglas Murray is one of the most fascinating and smartest guys that I know. He's the author of The War on the West. You should check out that book. Pretty much whenever Douglas Murray has an opinion he wants to share, I am a willing listener. I have an ear. Douglas joined us just recently to talk about his criticism of Western culture, not just the United States of America, but Western culture at large, in turning over decision-making to the youth, turning away from the veneration of age. I put it to him, what about Mitch McConnell? What about Nancy Pelosi? What about Dianne Feinstein? What about Joe Biden? And he says, age and wisdom do not always go hand in hand. And our gerontocracy doesn't necessarily mean that we have embraced wisdom. But it does suggest that the older you are, the more deferential you happen to be often towards the trends of the youth. 
He asks an amazing question here. Whatever happened to wisdom? I hope you enjoy this conversation with Douglas Murray. (laughs) Douglas Murray, so great to see you again. I want to, if we might just start off with a video I saw of you recently. I have no idea when you recorded this video, but I'm not even here to tell you it went viral. I think it's only got 10 likes. But one of my producers noticed this video, and it was... A fascinating piece of wisdom, as you are accustomed to sharing, where you are saying that what's happened in culture is that adults have run in fear of children, that adults have vacated the public square. I wonder, and as you gave as an example in that video you talked about on college campuses, you talked about in corporate boardroom life in the United Kingdom, I wonder why it is you feel like adults have run in fear from youth. It's a, it's a very interesting phenomenon, this, Will. I mean, um, some people in modern America think that it's inevitable that the, the kids would have all of the running. Um, there's even a sort of assumption that, for instance, young people always rebel. And, and that's not the case. Um, many cultures, in fact, most cultures, uh, revere age and wisdom. Uh, they don't revere ignorance and novelty. And there's something particular in American and I think wider Western culture, basically in the last 50 years or so, where I think a lot of adults lost confidence in their ideas. Some of that was justified. Uh, Much of it was not. Uh, But it means that now we have this strange situation in sector after sector of the culture and of business where, yes, I mean, um, uh, the CEO is weirdly not the person wielding power. Uh, the power can be wielded by any uh, junior employee or intern uh, making a claim of discomfort. I give, I've given example after example of this in recent books. Of, I mean, uh, somebody like a, a partner at KPMG, major accountancy firm. Uh, uh, KPMG has a partner who says that he doesn't think that bias training makes much sense. A junior employee complains and he's out. Uh, this did not used to be the case. I don't need to tell you that, that that the adults ran in fear uh, uh, of the kids. But I think that is what's happening. And unfortunately, not only does it make the whole culture stupider, um, it means we're always, uh, every adult is uh, at the mercy of young people who may be being sincere and very often may not be and may simply be utilizing a weapon for their own advantage. There's a lot of different layers to this onion that I want to peel back, but I want to, and in fact, do accept your premise. I certainly accept the fact that youth seems to be running culture. And I think anyone who has worked in corporate America has experienced this phenomenon where, as you just point out, the lowest level employee can make the CEO shiver in his big leathered back chair. He can make his spine go weak for whatever reason. That seems to be, Douglas... I would suggest perhaps a 30, 40, 50 year phenomenon, maybe a little more recently than than what I'm discussing, maybe in the last 20 years. But I don't think it's uncorrelated to the rise of human resources, to the rise of the HR department in corporate America, where in sort of a um, role validation, self-validation, those wings of every corporation take those types of accounts and complaints so very seriously, and then in turn can threaten the job of the CEO. Yes, uh, the rise of HR has a huge amount to do with this. Uh, I've said a number of times recently that uh, I'm struck by the fact that one of the jokes that people like me have told in recent years turned out to be flat out wrong. And that was a joke that if your kid really wanted to go to Berkeley to do Celtic knitting and lesbian performative dance as a degree, uh, uh, good luck because you're not going to pay off your loan because there's nobody who wants you in their employ. The joke actually turned out to be on me and people like me. It turned out that these people had masses of places to go to. They filled up HR departments and uh, they even fill up HR departments at conservative institutions. You know, yes. uh, so so it's the real it's a real problem. This um, HR is, of course, just a sort of massively. It's it's one of those like amoebic beings that just grows and grows. Um, and, and, and obviously, you know, if you set, if you set up 
uh, a department within an organization to find problems and deal with them, it will keep finding problems and find reasons to keep growing. Um, that's definitely a part of it. But just also consider uh, um, the way in which we talk about age and experience in our society. I mean, what is the one demographic that you can routinely simply insult and wish to get rid of? Oh, we've got such an aging demographic, mm. whether that's in sport or in, in, uh, in uh, I don't know, movies or theatre or the arts or, or, or almost anything. If you immediate, when you're saying, oh, there's a worry that the demographic is old, like we talk about age and old people as if they are simply a problem and as if the solution to all of that is more and more young people. And again, that hasn't been the case historically in almost any civilization I can think of. Um, in 19th century Vienna, young men wanted to look old. Uh, Stefan Zweig writes about this. They, wanted to, they actually wanted to look older than they were because to be a young man was to be a bit ignorant and not that full of knowledge, and you didn't want that. Strangely, in our own culture, we have old people wanting to be young because we've just said that sort of wisdom doesn't really have a place in the society. You know, as long as something is said by something new and shiny, uh, we get mm -hmm. interested in it. But, you know, where is the wisdom? Where is the memory? Where is the, the, the knowledge that should be imparted? We, we've done away with it almost deliberately, it seems to me. Do you think, Douglas, you're much more culturally well-rounded than I. Do you think that is uniquely not just Western, but, but uniquely American? I mean, America reveres youth and, and, and America reveres the future over the past. America is all about, yeah. I don't mean this politically, but progressive cultural revolution. What I mean by that is America's always into inventing and innovating the next thing and moving on to the next piece of music and moving on to the next movie, not watching old black and white movies and not listening to classical music. America, American culture, and this is not just a vice, this is part of America's virtue as well, is to see sunnier tomorrows and to reach for them. And so I wonder, you know, in my mind, Douglas, at least, um, you know, conversationally, I think of when I think of revering age and wisdom, I think of Japan. And so what I'm wondering is, is that still the case in places like Japan? Is that still the place in some place like Vienna? Is that still the case in some place like Italy? Or are they similar to America now in revering youth? Well, everywhere is similar to America. I mean, American cultural import goes everywhere. I, I, I understand that in a country like Japan, uh, that, that veneration of, of age still exists. There certainly are societies in the, in, in, in the world at the moment which don't have a totally youth-orientated idea. Um, I actually tried this idea out recently on, on somebody I respect very much who's in his 80s now, uh, recently, and, and he was thinking about this problem. And he said, well, I think, Douglas, actually the reason the adults disappeared was in the wake of Vietnam. And I thought that was very interesting. This, this man happened to have served in Vietnam. And he said, I just think we came back out of, out of sort of, out, we're exhausted, feeling lied to, feeling like we'd failed. And then it was just like, I don't know, let the kids have a go. And I thought there was a there was a considerable truth in that. And actually, you could look at the last 20 years in American politics and say something similar. You know, when people criticize certain people on the Republican side in particular at the moment, you know, I, I always say, well, who are the older, wiser Republicans you want to go back to? And actually, there is a missing generation there. I don't think many Republicans do want to hear all that much about foreign policy from people in charge of foreign policy in the 2000s, for instance. So when somebody comes along with a shiny new idea, they get an awful lot more running because the adults kind of let themselves and everyone else down. It's, it's a very long lag time on these things, isn't there, Will? You know, um, and if you thought now in American politics, I mean, uh, Democrats always like to pretend that they they like the last Republican who lost, you know, normally. Right. Uh, or they, they do about 
they do about 20 years later, don't they? They say, oh, it's not like the, you know, the respectful days of George W. Bush. And think, I remember what you guys were like during his day. But, you know, and I remember what they were like during Reagan's day. But they like to always, always play that game. But actually, it is a challenge in American politics now and in the wider culture to say, who is it that we look back to and we do revere? There are some sports heroes, but it's not an easy question to answer. I'm just laughing because I was at a bar in New York City last weekend, Douglas, and I guess this guy around the corner of the bar might have recognized who I was. And instead of, and this was on the Upper West Side of New York, so you know, the odds played into his favor that yes, I was the, I was the outlier on the Upper West Side. I was the black sheep, and he was well folded into the flock. He was a liberal, and so he wanted to engage me. Um, but he did exactly what you just said. It's not like the old days, and I think he invoked Mitt Romney. I think that's who he brought up. I cannot oh, remember, yeah. but you know, I was around. I was beginning this career. I was beginning this career when they called Mitt Romney a racist who attached his dog to the top of uh, to the top of his car and cut off uh, some private school friends hair you know i remember when mitt romney was the worst man on earth yes uh do you think by the way do you think 20 years from now they will say that will they do that with trump do you think we'll be sitting at a bar in 20 years and and some liberal will go it's not like the old days you know if you guys were still into guys like donald trump i would understand um, something <laughs> remarkable would have happened if, if that is the case in about 20 years time. Well, uh, I don't expect that they'll ever, they'll ever concede that one. Um, I think <laughs> things would have to really be extraordinary for that to happen. But no, I mean, I, I actually take your point. I get these guys all the time, you know, uh, it's not like the old days of John McCain, you know, it's, it's not his Republican party. You go, oh, I remember what you guys said about John McCain. Right. Yeah. They're always very nice about conservatives at their memorial service. <laughs> okay, I want to offer you another correlation on where the adults went. I'm not sure how much weight to give this, but it's something that I certainly believe I've noticed at, at the very least, anecdotally. You know, there's a style of parenting that seems to have taken off over the past, oh, let's call it the last 20 years, where, uh, and I, I don't know, maybe it's my generation of parenting, and that's why I've seen it so much, where it seems to be the goal of most of the parents to become friends with their children. And um, even in terms of endearment, and I do some of this, I say, hey, buddy, you know, to, to my boys. Now, I, I, I would suggest to the audience that my household more resembles a 1950s style of parenting than a 2023 style of parenting. But um, the... I don't think I'm par for the course. I think a lot of people put their children on equal planes to them very quickly and give weight to their opinions very quickly um, that they are full of wisdom in some way because they're unique individuals and they're special flowers. And I just wonder if that hasn't created a generation of people both on both ends who are deferential to the youth and on the other side entitled as the youth. Absolutely. And uh, I mean, this idea that um, an idea or a concept must be of interest because it comes from a child is is, is not uh, uh, something I find persuasive. Um, but a, a lot of people clearly do. Um, and we have had a massive sea change. I don't need to tell you well in recent years with the whole idea that, you know, there, there's all this stuff that's rushing at parents of what the kids have absorbed at school. Um, and, you know, all the kind of identity stuff that's thrown a lot of parents. A lot of parents don't know what to do about that. And that, I've, I've argued in previous books, partly comes out of this movement of recent decades, a post-60s movement, really, which is that the child is formed and knows itself, and you mustn't argue with the self. And uh, this is, by the way, complete hokum. Um, the self that we have is constantly being negotiated. Uh, there is no intrinsic self of a child. Like a, a two-year-old doesn't just know itself and must just then be sort of encouraged to keep being interested in itself. Uh, the child will change depending on the outside world and the people around the child and the, the input that it gets. So there are these very strange ideas that have caught root in recent decades, such as that idea that, you know, a, a child has some kind of nascent knowledge mm. and that the, the, the parent must kind of stand back in awe and see it happen. No, uh, a, a, a identity is, is, is negotiated. It is formed along the way. 
Um, I don't want to get into the gender nonsense because it's such a time waster. But I mean, that's that 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 has erupted from that. You know, but what does a, what does a ten year old know about themselves? Uh, only what has been put into their brain. Uh, uh, only what they've absorbed from their environment. There's no there's no echt knowledge, you know, of the ten year old child. And we used to know that uh, there was a Woody Allen film called Everyone Says I Love You that came out about twenty years ago, and you could still quote Woody Allen. And when he was still making vaguely watchable films, it's a rather sweet film where everyone starts to break into that classic song "I'm Through with Love," and the sort of teenage boy starts to sing "I'm Through with Love," and the Woody Allen character turns around and says, "What do you know? You're twelve." Um, and there was a time where that was laughable, and it's sort of not laughable now. Wait, I've got several curiosities I must follow. Let's do this in quick fashion. What is Douglas Murray's favorite movie? Oh, uh, that's so hard. As in the movie I like to see a lot, I've seen many times. Oh, almost anything by Merchant Ivory. I think uh, The Remains of the Day. That's one of my. That's possibly <laughs> my favorite movie, based on the uh, Kazuo Ishiguro novel. With a it, beautiful uh, performance by Anton. Unbelievably well, that, beautiful film. That that sure shows the difference between us because my answer was the Big Lebowski. Um, and and what what's your what's your favorite book, Douglas Murray? My favorite book uh, is almost what I said is also my favorite film, which is The Leopard by Giuseppe de Lampedusa, the great novel of um, uh, a family in Italy sort of uh, falling into falling from grandeur to falling apart. And it was made into a great film uh, starring the stunning Claudia Cardinale. Uh, And so so it's one of the very few times when something that's my favorite book is almost also my favorite film. The Leopard is uh, infinitely worth reading and ravishing to watch. I've got to give more thought to my favorite book. At one time, I might have said The Fountainhead. At another time, I might have said Lonesome Dove. I've got to give more thought to my favorite book. And then do you watch contemporary television series, shows, these big serialized novelizations? Okay, so what is your favorite uh, serialized television show? Ooh, uh, I think that... I. That's where I think the entertainment is. I, most movies I can't bear now. I find them so predictable and boring. But all of that has got, all of that, what was in the movies is now in the, the, the great series. Uh, I mean, from The Wire and uh, Sopranos through Breaking Bad, Succession. I mean, there's so many great, great show, serial shows. And uh, I think maybe the best of all in recent years has been Babylon Berlin. Uh, oh, which I was the most expensive show ever made on German television. It's apt- I-, I would say watch it, but you will lose the next twenty four hours of your life because you won't be able really. To stop. Oh, I'm uh, so glad I yeah. pursued this line of questioning because I've never even heard of it. Babylon Berlin. Babylon Berlin is a noir, dark murder mystery thing set in Weimar Germany, and an amazing cast. Just there's so much talent in these series, isn't there? I mean, the acting is just through the roof better than what you can find in most Hollywood films these days. Okay, let's return back to this co- uh, this conversation about societal, cultural wisdom for a moment. How do we reconcile that against... I don't know where you are on this topic, but I've certainly... Um, I've certainly come to believe that our government in the United States of America, I can't speak to other Western societies, the UK, but I mean, it is populated by octogenarians who have well outworn their welcome and, and not just in, in recognizability, but in, in frailty in physical ability. Obviously, we know that to be the case with Joe Biden. Mitch McConnell has shown himself. I mean, to, he's got something going on. I don't know what it is. Dianne Feinstein should not be in Congress. Nancy Pelosi is going to run again at the age of 83. And she, I will say, Nancy Pelosi doesn't show problems with mental acuity, uh, but still 83 years old. To me, by the way, just as a practical matter, Douglas, I'm in favor of term limits. I, I think that solves itself on someone staying around until they should be in a nursing home. But, you know, it's for me, it's not so much about age. If you got elected for the first time at 76, you know, and, and served until you were 84 and you were mentally sharp, great. Um, but we do have a problem with, I think, too many old people in Congress. How do you reconcile that against, um, if you agree with me, the need for more wisdom, more age and more wisdom? Well, by the way, these two things aren't mutually exclusive. In fact, they reinforce each other. If you've got a gerontocracy as your political class, those people are likely to be bowing down to youth too much. 
to try to compensate. It's a, it's a form of overcompensation, like the white male CEO, like uh, Tim Cook's just done it at Apple, where you make an excruciating five-minute commercial about Mother Earth, and you just, like, flood the whole thing with large black women actors as if they're your workplace staff. Um, you, you know, if, if you're um, an aging, white, heterosexual male CEO like Tim Cook, you have to overdo that stuff. So I think these two things actually sort of feed off each other. Um, uh, the the gerontocracy in American politics is highly unusual. And my own view, I expressed this actually just earlier today on Outnumbered. My own view is that there is a kind of cartel-like behavior, particularly among the Democrats on this, but I think it happens across the board. Um, nobody in politics should be as rich as Nancy Pelosi has become. Right. From a life in politics. And nobody should be as wealthy as Joe Biden has become from a life in politics and everyone around him. And here's the thing is I think that's happened on both sides, although it seems to be more pronounced among the Democrats. But, you know, Will, not far from where we're sitting uh, down in Wall Street, if you do insider trading, you're going to go down. And there are very sophisticated systems to discover insider trading. Why is... The only place that inside trading is allowed, uh, the Senate and Congress. I, I cannot understand that. How can a senator uh, drop a stock option just before a collapse and uh, make a whole heap of money? And, well, you know, I'm sorry, that's rotten. That's really rotten. So my own view is that the, the gerontocracy actually happens because it's protecting itself. Mm. There's just this class of people holding on, and they're going to hold on till the bitter end, because otherwise they know that the people coming up underneath them might have quite a lot of questions to ask. Well, you are exactly right. How, uh, Congressman Scott Perry said it the other day, tell me how Joe Biden has multiple millions of dollars based on a lifetime as a career as a U.S. senator. The math doesn't math. And, and he's not alone. Uh, there's so many. And even for the ones that we don't know of who serve for a short amount of time, it's equally corrupt that they go immediately into a life of lobbying where they get completely rich while they're not in office. This is a real deep-rooted corruption at the heart of our system. Um you also wrote a column about setting setting aside or moving beyond our guilt complex, Douglas. And here's this is I know what you're referencing. I know what you're talking about. You're talking about this this sense of collective guilt for the sins of our past. You know, I, I don't know. I'm going to say some things out loud and I don't know how they all fit together as sort of like America, the West on its therapist's couch. But, you know, I, I noticed this. Um, I believe it was in the wake of Matt Walsh, the Daily Wire commentator, talking about that woman who made a video a few weeks ago talking about how um, she loved her single life, that she didn't have children, that she was completely free to sleep in and watch TV shows all day. And Matt Walsh had harsh, harsh judgment for her. And then I think it was Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban that said in rebuttal to him, why are you filled with such hate? We talked about it on Fox and Friends. I think for many on the left, hate and judgment have become interchangeable concepts and interchangeable words. That judgment is the same thing as hate. If you pass judgment on someone, you have hated them, which, and I think that is completely false. You know, judgment is what keeps us from eating poison. Judgment is how we raise our children. Judgment can be an act of love. But I think kind of as part of that, as I'm on this therapist couch with you, in some ways, at least very much on an individual level, guilt is of use. Guilt is a course corrective on behavior. Yeah. But I think that you are pointing out that we have almost fetishized, I guess that's my words, we have fetishized guilt collectively. Well, yes. I mean, my own view is that uh, um, we have a very strange guilt complex in Western societies these days, which is, again, like the youth of sessions, very unnatural, both historically and in the world at the moment. If you go to Uganda or Nigeria, they're not desperately looking over their past as slave trading nations and 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 kingdoms not at all they're, they're trying to get on with things in the 21st century it, it's only the, the the west that plays that strange historical guilt i um i used to say it was about self-loathing but uh, the truth is is that it's not among the people who practice it 
the people who practice it are expressing a form of extraordinary self-love. Um, they are deeply pleased with themselves for being <laughs> the most self You know, yeah. they want you to be racked by guilt like them. And because you're not, they're going to out-guilt you and show right. how much better than you they are. Right. Right. Um, I mean, these, these are these are narcissists parading as 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 guilt trippers. Yes, and um, the reason why there's a flaw in this, I wrote about this recently in the Australian because Australia has a very interesting vote coming up about various historical issues, and uh, I wrote there, you know, um, what? Why does an Australian school child in 2023 get invited in sort of kindergarten age? to write notes of apology to aboriginals um what 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 has the the five-year-old in 2023 done for goodness sake and the answer is nothing nobody is alive who the harm was done by nobody is alive who has been harmed uh the whole thing is a crock uh, i believe it's the same case with the reparations shakedown in the u.s Nobody is alive who did the, the sin. Nobody is alive who, who suffered the hurt. Therefore, the whole thing is a crock. Um, and that's that's one of the, the, the roots of the problem going on at the moment is I'm afraid not enough people are willing to say that. You say, I don't believe you when you say uh, I am suffused with guilt and we are all suffused by guilt. No, you want me to be suffused exactly. by guilt so that I pipe. You want to be filled with self-love and congratulations so you can pipe up. It's and not. I don't accept that. Oh. It's not as I described it. You know, this like societal opus day of course corrective behavior where we self-flagellate to get past our past sins. It's that they're offering to hold the whip for you. I will flagellate you exactly. and help you through your your guilt. I will help you uh, yeah. as your savior. As, um, I, as, as I always say, I think there's a um, there's a. I, I, it, it's it's. It, I'm told that the pro a great problem for masochists is what happens if they meet a real sadist, and uh, Western masochists in recent years have discovered an awfully large number of sadists on the international and national stage who are willing to say, oh, you're willing to talk yourself down and hate yourself and uh, talk down your society. Great. We would like that, too. Can you imagine if the reparations bargain was struck? We, we accept your premise. Let's arrive at the negotiation table. Is there a meeting of the minds? Is there a deal to be struck that puts the, the grievance behind us in the past? And I think you and I both know the answer to that. But wouldn't it be an interesting test case? And then while we're at the negotiating table, let's settle all claims. Let us provide reparations across the globe, across borders for everyone who has a historical claim of, um, oppression. And we will all do a quick, Shuffling of the dominoes, shuffling of the money. And yeah. afterwards, everyone get on with it and do your best. Yeah, I, I, I mean, um, as I always say, I, I could end the reparations thing in one afternoon of tin rattling in New York alone. Uh, uh, Italian-Americans had a very bad deal in the 19th century. Uh, why don't we do a whip around of everyone, including in Brooklyn and Queens and everywhere else, and give a whole pile of cash to anyone who can prove they're of Italian descent? Do you want to do that? I don't. Um, we need a big whip around for the million or so Europe, white Europeans who were stolen by North Africans uh, during the Barbie Pirates era. We definitely need to go and get money from Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco, and elsewhere, and, and, and do a shakedown of current uh, North Africans and give that money to uh, southern Mediterranean Europeans and indeed the people from the coastlines of Britain who were stolen. Um, uh, I think that probably the most uh, beleaguered people in history who've suffered the most are the Jews. Uh, should we do a whip around around America uh, and take money from everybody uh, in the country and uh, hand it over to everyone who's Jewish? Uh, I think all of this is an ethical nightmare. It's an obvious nonsense. And in the case of America, it's obviously unworkable. I love Dave Chappelle's observation that if reparations were ever given, buy shares in Nike um, because uh, there's going to be a big shopping spree uh, uh, <laughs> down there after the reparations. <laughs> and about, uh, he can make that joke. I couldn't possibly. But um, I mean, everybody knows this is nonsense. Can you imagine how divisive this would be in, in black communities in America? We'd have to. 
But community, communities remember that Kamala Harris told us at the last election, can't uh, use a Xerox machine. Do you remember she said that you can't get ID because a lot of guys, uh, a lot of people in the black community don't have access to a photocopying machine. N- nevertheless, we're going to do a massive DNA trawl and work out precisely who was descended from slaves, who was descended from slavers, who was des- descended from a bit of both or all of the above. We're going to do a massive DNA trawl and then work right. out the money distribution based on that. If you think that's going to happen, uh, I've got a bridge to sell you because uh, that is the most fantastical and unlikely thing ever. And even Gavin Newsom of California, when he set that racket, that, that inquiry going, and they came back and said something like, every black uh, um, person in California should be given about, I don't know, what was it, $22 billion or something. Uh, even Gavin Newsom sort of started to step away and realized maybe this wasn't going to work. Yeah, down to the individual level, to your point, you find out that not only are you not eligible for reparations, but that you and you going around this world, considering yourself uh, self-identifying as black, you're not only not eligible for reparations, you owe reparations, of course, because you oh, yeah. have well, you uh, you have lineage, you have DNA that connects you to slave owners some time back. I mean, how that, do you, you unsort this deck of cards? Absolutely. You remember that Angela Davis quote recently? Yes. Did you see that? Yes. You remember when she. Having spent her whole life expecting reparations, uh, she does that program and uh, she discovers that she was descended from somebody who came over on the Mayflower. There was a time when people were rather proud to be descended from somebody who came over on the Mayflower. For Angela Davis, former Black Panther, et cetera, et cetera, it was absolutely devastating. Uh, she believed she was 100% victim. And suddenly she turned out not to be 100% victim. She turned out to be some percentage victimizer, to use her own uh, uh, terminology. So Angela Davis probably now actually owes money in reparations since that uh, DNA test, that ancestry test. It went very badly for her, and I think it'll go very badly for a lot of other people, which is just one of many reasons why I don't think it should be done. All right, let's end this conversation, um, bringing it back to where we started. Let's talk again for a moment about youth and wisdom. And my question for you is to go back to that, not just global, but historical context. You talked about how unique this is um, for us to embrace youth, to reject wisdom. I'm curious... If it doesn't, though, have precedent in, in history, that it hasn't been done before. And, and most notably, whenever we look at revolutionary circumstances, um, I can't speak to the French Revolution, but I can, I think, speak to the Chinese Cultural Revolution. And was that not an embrace of the youth? It was taught in the schools and it turned the young against the old um, in that time. And I just wonder if maybe what we should be looking at is not so much this scary, we've never been here before, but in fact, a scary, we have been here before. Well, that's very interesting. Uh, yes, I mean, the French Revolution had its different origins, but I think you could certainly say the Chinese Cultural Revolution was an attempt to completely uh, rewire the brains of everyone in China. And of course, it didn't work and caused an untold amount of misery, human suffering and death. Um, probably Chairman Mao is responsible for more deaths than anyone in the 20th century, which means almost anyone apart from Genghis Khan. I think it's 60 million people uh, Chairman Mao is responsible for killing, uh, which makes even um, Joseph Stalin and, and Adolf Hitler uh, um, look smaller by comparison. I mean, it's it's, it's un- unbelievable um, what Mao tried to do and the brutality with which he did it. And of course, it didn't work. I mean, we do know from the French Revolution, among others, that, that you can't start from year zero. You know, I mean, that was what... Um, uh, that was what Robespierre and co thought was going to happen. They thought that you could you could start the world anew, and uh, you couldn't. Uh, you never can. Um, and all revolutionary moments, in my view, has been that for the last few years in America, we've been in such a moment. Uh, it's thankfully less bloody uh, uh, than than some previous cultural revolutions, but it won't necessarily always be. It's extremely dangerous to allow p- uh, revolutionary thinkers to rush unhindered through your schoolyards and your teaching rooms and uh, and much more, um, because almost everything they say not only is unworkable, but provably unworkable and will only lead to far, far more misery. And that's that's one of the reasons why I'm particularly suspicious of the people leading the current cultural revolution. And I've said this many times, but 
that the main leaders of it in America will not debate their ideas. And that is a sign not just of somebody who has a weak idea, but of a true totalitarian, because they know that if you allow any challenge to the ideas, the ideas might not stand up and then the revolution will fail. Um, it doesn't require, and we know this from the Russian Revolution as well, it doesn't require many people to be dedicated revolutionaries uh, for this whole society to be taken over by a, a basilisk of an idea. And uh, that's something that some people in America are trying. Thankfully, so far, there are enough people with sense in America uh, to push back. And at that point, I have to say, first and foremost, a shout out to American parents, because they are the heroes of recent years who have just stood up in county after county in this country and said, no, I don't like what my child is being taught. They have been defamed. They have sometimes been arrested. Uh, but a huge amount of credit and shout out needs to go to ordinary parents in this country who know in their bones that this revolution is rotten. Douglas Murray, always fun, always enlightening. Thank you for your time. Such a great pleasure. There you go. Again, check out War on the West. Check out Douglas Murray. I appreciate him for that conversation. Now, as we enter football week in week three in college football, week two in the NFL, what are Bears' best bets of the week? Story number three. Chris Felica has a podcast at Fox Sports Podcast, Bears Bets where he lays out some of the best picks of the week for you on Football Weekend. He and I broke out some of the games I'm most interested in this weekend. We took a moment, we took a moment to celebrate and contextualize. What does it mean that Texas is back, that Texas beat Alabama, plus some of his favorite picks? Here is Chris Felica, the Bear. Chris Felica, Bear of Bear Bets. We did it, Bear. We did it. Texas is back. You predicted it. I I lived it. The Texas Longhorns defeated the Alabama Crimson Tide. How we, this is not the major topic for you and I today as we go through games going into week 3. But come on. How huge is that win, Bear? It was massive and it opens up all sorts of doors for Texas. And I think the first thing to to say is it was not a flukish type win. Texas was the better team. I don't think it was ever debatable from the time they kicked it off. They had the better quarterback. Uh, they got the better set of receivers. They got the better front seven on defense, offensive line play. And it, it was not a fluke. And it opens up not only a, a, a national t- a college football playoff berth, potentially, but in maybe even a, a trip to New York for the Heisman Trophy ceremony for Quinn Ewers. But no, they, they were they were the better team. And for all of the people like myself who they weren't all the way in yet, they kind of had a feeling this year might be different. Now I think there is no... Uh, question that that Texas is a legitimate national title contender this year. Do you think it opens up one more door? And and this is where everyone, everyone, usually not me, gets way ahead of their skis. A win like that does have the ability to shift the recruiting landscape, maybe not seismically, but marginally. And the question that that people are asking and some are beginning to answer is, does this win actually mark a change of college football? Does it set Texas up for a sustained run? I know that's incredibly presumptuous to say the way Texas has played over the last 13 years, but they do seem to have a foundation now. That was a huge win. And at the same time, does it begin to signify the end of Alabama? Now, I am not the person that wants to ring that bell early. Uh, That's like the guy that wants to say Tom Brady is going over the cliff. That's your take. That's not my take. I'll be the last one out the door. But I, I was reading some of this. Like, It's not about Saban and it's not about Alabama. Nobody does that for as long as they did that. You just don't put recruiting class after recruiting class together, Bear, and hit. You start missing. You know, when Texas went down, they were still getting top recruiting classes, but they were missing on player evaluations or player development. Do you think there's a bigger shifting of the sands here? Perhaps Texas rising, but more importantly, Alabama falling. Yeah, I'm, I'm not in the Alabama falling. I, I do think maybe they they missed on some guys. I mean, they had a, look. They needed. They left themselves empty at the quarterback position this year with, with the departure of Bryce Young. Uh, Milroe is not the guy that maybe they thought he was. The freshman came in and weren't ready to play right off the bat. I do think the shift 
and the implications will be massive in the state of Texas, though. I think if you look at what Texas did on Saturday night with a big win at Alabama, contrast that with what happened in South Florida with, with A&M getting absolutely uh, blown out by Miami, having nearly 50 points hung up. Like That stuff matters in the recruiting wars. And for, for a while, the SEC, had, uh, A&M rather, had that SEC card to, to play in terms of come play in the SEC. You can still go come to Texas, stay in Texas, but you're going to play in the SEC. That's obviously no longer there. And the, the trajectory of the A&M program, not really able to take off the way that a lot of people thought they might be able to, but uh, in the state of Texas, I think I'd say uh, a massive deal now for Texas as they head into the SEC, and I, I know they were uh, secretly very happy with what happened in South Florida as well, with the Aggies going down. All right, let's talk about, I want to do three college football games, three pro football games with you this week, going into week two of the NFL and week three of college football. Week three of college football, kind of a weird week. It's like the week that everybody takes off. There's not very many headline games. People load up week one or week two. As I looked at the slate, I will tell you, the game that I found most interesting, outside of course caring about my own personal allegiances like Texas versus Wyoming, but one where I don't have an affiliation is probably Florida versus Tennessee. Florida at Tennessee. Florida is getting seven, Bear. Two questions for you. Who do you like there? And is that, am I right? Is that sort of the best game we have this weekend? Traditionally, I mean, this used to be a game that had national title and SEC title implications all along. And uh, after how the Gators looked in Utah in week one, uh, you've, you've got to wonder about where the Gators are right now. But, it, but it's interesting. In, in a game like that, I think we've seen Tennessee, they weren't great at all against Austin P earlier in this season. Uh, I, I think Joe Milton is certainly a guy who has a huge arm, but I don't think he has the same catchable ball like Hendon Hooker did. Like I would lean towards taking the Gators. Now you're at home, your SEC opener, it's a chance to kind of right the wrongs of what happened in Utah week one. I know, I know it's hard to kind of get behind Graham Mertz, a guy who's had a lot of chances and never really seemed to make that leap. But I think the Gators would be the play here. It's interesting because if you look around the country this week, there aren't, like you said, there aren't a ton of great games, but I kind of clumped four games together into one little category. You've got the Tennessee Florida game. You've got Florida State at BC. You've got Penn State at Illinois and you have LSU at Mississippi State. They are all touchdown favorites. Ranked teams on the road as a touchdown favorite against an unranked conference opponent on the road. So like, we think these teams should go on the road and win because they're a big favorite and the home team is seen perceived as down, but would not surprise me at all to see at least one, uh, maybe two of those home underdogs really give their, uh, their ranked opponents some problems here. It's still college football and pretty much anything can happen on any given week. The other two games that I will probably be watching or at least keeping up with when it's going down on Saturday, I don't even know why, but BYU-Arkansas is of some interest to me. BYU, Arkansas is SEC. BYU's coming over to the Big 12. I just kind of want to see that power, that soon-to-be Power 5 matchup. And then uh, Washington against Michigan State, at Michigan State, with, with Mel Tucker going through what he's going through. He won't be on the sidelines. And so that's interesting. But the rest of the country, the truth is, and that both – both college game day and big noon kickoff. Everybody's going to be in Colorado, and that's all anybody cares about. It's Dion. It's Colorado, Colorado State. Yeah, it, it is. That, that Washington-Michigan State game is very interesting as well because this was kind of the game last year where it all really started unraveling for Michigan State. They went up to to Seattle and got absolutely blown out by the Huskies. And I think if UW is the team that a lot of people – think that they are with Penix and those receivers in that defensive front, uh, they'll go to East Lansing and they'll have no problem with Michigan State. But you're right with Colorado. Like It's an it's an amazing thing where something that had never been done before, you get a win as a 21-point dog against TCU, you have an unbelievable second half last week against Nebraska, and, and now here you are, you're 2-0, you've got Colorado State coming in, and you're going to be 3-0, and and as a, in the betting world, like I, I posed this question to a bunch of people today so far, like, is there still a bet that you could potentially make on Colorado, uh, whether it's this week on, on Colorado State and maybe kind of a, a sandwich spot for CU as they had the game against Nebraska last week, and then they have uh, your, your game at Oregon next week. Uh, is it a season win total? Is it is it something that 
um, maybe like Deion Sanders to win coach of the year. Like if CU goes from one and 11 to going six and six or seven and five, like I would think he'd be live to win that award. I know normally it takes nine or 10 wins to win a reward, a, 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 a an award like that. If I can actually get the words out of my mouth today, but to go from one and 11 to six and six or seven and five and kind of be the talk of college football, I would think he would be live. So I expect CU to win big against the, against, uh, what's the line? Rams this weekend. What's Colorado State getting? Right? 23? 23 right now, which seems like a lot of points, and normally a lot of people would take those points, but I, I don't think Colorado, right, this this team, this bunch of guys, and, and Dion and that staff are wired this way. There's no like, oh, we got to beat the boys for Fort Collins, a big state right now. They don't care. I think they want to put up a big number and go into Eugene next week with a lot of confidence. Somewhere the hype catches up, though, and it's good to take the points. I don't know when, and I don't know if it's this weekend, Maybe but... Next week. Yeah, maybe next week. Um, I, I recognize this is not the one eleven team. It's literally not the same roster. So we don't really know what we're dealing with here in Colorado, but we do know we're dealing with a lot of hype. Um, let's go over to the NFL. You're also covering that on Bear Bets podcast. Um, you're doing NFL picks as well. I've got three games that I'm interested in. It's only week two. Um, but, you know... Here, here's the here's the first game that has my attention, Bear. It's it's Vikings at Eagles. Both good teams last year. The Eagles are favored by seven at home. Um, the Patriots are really good. They're always a good team. When I say really good, I mean you should take a victory over the Patriots in Foxborough seriously. I think even so, I I don't I don't deduct points from the Eagles for how tight that game was last week. But I also think the Vikings are good. And so I, I'm, that's a lot of points um, to give the Vikings. It, it is. And if you look at the box score in, in that game, the, the, the Vikings-Bucks uh, game from week one, like the, the Vikings should have won the game. Like, like it, It's really amazing that they didn't. And you're getting six points now against a team. Look, the Eagles last year, a lot of people pointed towards – Everyone was healthy. They didn't have any any adversity. Like, and after one game, you've got what Nicobe Dean out of for a while. Bradbury, the defensive back, uh, is out, and certainly that's a problem with uh, with Justin Jefferson and, and Kirk Cousins. Uh, like, I would be inclined to agree with you. Well, in, in taking the points here, I I thought this was going to be a little bit of a, a regression type season for the Eagles, and uh, they look. They won a road game against a very good team. Uh, you got to give them credit for that. But now you like, like you said, laying, laying close to a touchdown here at home against a team that's certainly capable of putting up points, a playoff team from last year that could potentially start 0-2. That's certainly an angle that I think is worth looking at. All right, Seahawks Lions. I've got five and a half. I don't know what your what your lines show, but it's Lions laying mm-hmm. five and a half at home. I think, um, yeah, it's at home in Detroit. And the big question for everybody is how real is Detroit? I now hear Detroit. Bear, I'm hearing Detroit mentioned in the same breath as San Francisco, as Philadelphia, and Dallas. And so I'm hearing people talk about Detroit as one of the top teams in the NFC. I'm I'm pumping those brakes, and, and I think this is an interesting. I, I think what they did going to Kansas City and winning was great, but at the same time, this is a very dangerous game. I think for the Lions because I think a lot of people now are expecting you to be that team, and if you like Seattle in this game, you probably just want to wait it out a little bit because I think this number is going to touch six or or six and a half, especially with the way. Seattle looked last week, especially in the secondary um, against the Rams. You lost both of your offensive tackles in the game. Geno Smith looked terrible at one point in the second half. I think the total yardage was like 259 to 3 or, or something along those lines. But now as a big home favorite against the again, team back against the wall, playoff team from last year, potentially could start 0-2. So much hype with the Lions. If 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 you if you're on the fence and you, you're thinking about taking Seattle, you might just want to sit back and wait because, like I said, I think you're going to get a, a better number as we get closer to Sunday. I think the Lions should win, but I'd be very very hesitant to uh, to lay those points. Okay, finally, how bad are the Bengals? They're still favored by three points at home. The Ravens are coming in, and I, I don't I don't know what to make of the Bengals right now. Um, but I don't know that I feel confident enough in them right now to lay three points against the Ravens. Yeah, I actually do. I actually like the Bengals in this game. Uh, I, I think losing J.K. Dobbins is a big deal. Big deal. 
I think Lamar is still kind of working his way into that offense. And look, they, they won, but they weren't great against Houston. Now you don't want to overreact from week one to week two. But I think it wasn't as – I loved the, the Browns last week. That was my best bet, and unfortunately it got there. I expected that type of performance from Cleveland. And I think when anytime you look at Joe Burrow, who didn't play in the, in the preseason, so many of their starters didn't play – in the preseason, and now you had a new secondary uh, breaking in some a new a new defense, a new corner, a couple of new safeties. That all matters. Your offensive line did struggle, but I I think coming home here, and, and I and I maybe people say think sometimes I maybe read a little too much into what the number is, and the fact that it's north of a field goal, it's three and a half. That tells me that the Vegas odds makers. Are, are basically going into the game being okay with people taking Baltimore and say, okay, if the Ravens lose by a field goal, you'll win. Like I, I think that number being north of three tells me that they think the Bengals are the right side and that after a week of play and finally getting his, his feet wet in game action, that Burrow and that Bengals offense will certainly be better. So I would uh, I, I would lean towards taking the Bengals here. Late I like that stuff. That's the good stuff. I want to know what Vegas is thinking. You just swung me. Okay. I'm on the, I'm on the Bengals. <laughs> and you can get more of that good stuff at Bear Bets, including where you can hear him, as he alluded to right there, with his big bet of the week, his, his pick of the week. All right, Bear. Thank you, man. We'll check you out at Bear Bets. Great. Thanks, Will. There you go. Again, check out Bear Bets at Fox Sports Podcast. And I will see you again next time. Listen ad-free with a Fox News Podcast Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. And Amazon Prime members, you can listen to this show ad-free on the Amazon Music app. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.